All right, Luke. So I have a question for you. Okay, wait. Are you ready for the question? Yeah. So how old are you? Four. Four. Right. Do you remember how old I am? No. How old do you think I am? Fifty-nine. Fifty-nine. <laughs> that's uh, that's a little older than I am. How old do you think I really am? Fifty-nine. You really think I'm fifty-nine, huh? Yeah. You know, I'm actually younger than that. I am, I'm 39. Did you remember the nine? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, how old do you think that you will live? A hundred. You think you'll live to a hundred? Yeah. You know what? What? I think you might live to a hundred too. And do you know what? What? That's what today's episode is about. It's about living to 100 and all the things that that means for us. Are you ready to hear it? Yes. So we have to tell people what the show is, though. Are you ready to tell them? Yes. All right. So we have to say it's Coaching for Leaders. Uh, it's Coaching for Leaders. Episode 266. Episode 266. You got it. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing Human Potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. And I'm so glad that you joined with me today because I have a guest with me today who uh, is a great thinker on human performance and management. And I recently received a message from a listener who said you have to check out her book because it is uh, it is positioning some wonderful thinking. And it's thinking that I think that as we start today's conversation that you'll find is uh, something you've probably been doing some thinking about too, if not consciously, at least thinking about in the back of your mind. And that is the reality that we're all living longer and how we are structuring our lives and our work around that. And I'm really glad to welcome Linda Gratton to the show today. Linda is professor of management practice at London Business School. She has been ranked in the top 15 on the Thinkers 50 list of the world's top 50 business thinkers. Linda has written eight books and many articles, including articles for the Financial Times, The Wall Street Journal, Harvard Business Review, and the MIT Sloan Business Review. Linda is the founder of the Hotspots Movement and is dedicated to bringing energy and innovation to companies. And she is the author with Andrew Scott of the new book, The 100-Year Life, Living and Working in an Age of Longevity. Linda, as we were preparing for our conversation today, I was thinking about our children. And uh, we have kids who are four and two right now. And I was thinking about how long they'll live. And one of the things I'm I'm really interested about in the research you've looked at is you've looked at some of the statistics on how long we're all going to live. And I was wondering if you could share some of the current statistics uh, on that with us. Well, well, thank you, Dave. Uh, And hello to your listeners. Here's the thing. Dave, for your four-year-old, there's a very high probability, more than a 50% chance that they'll live to 100 uh, now, that's not true for everybody, obviously, in every country, but certainly in Orange County, that's 
probably the case. Yeah. So they need to be preparing for a long, long life. And by the way, it could be it could be longer than that, depending on what sort of new innovations innovations we see in in, in medical technology. But right now. We think 100 is what many people should be expecting to live to. I'm uh, 61 years old. I'm expecting to live until I'm 90, uh, although the statistics would say 83, but I'm going to push that to 90, maybe even 100. <laughs> Good. Fabulous. Well, it, it, it's interesting because this is, we've built our society and our workplaces around a model that has starting to change. And and the old way was we had these three different distinct parts of life. And and you've looked at this in, this, in your research. And could you frame that for us and then how that's starting to change as, as, our, as, as we all age? Yes. So, so here's the thing. You know, when you think about your own life or the life of others, you probably think about it in three stages. Uh, one stage, full-time education. One stage, full-time work. One stage, the third stage, full-time retirement. And so those three stages are pretty much hard-baked into much corporate policy and certainly a great deal of government policy. And as we began to work through what what happens when many, many people live to 100 years old, it became obvious that that is not going to work. Um, it's too inflexible. It doesn't give people the, the chance to, be, to build a multi-stage life. So we think uh, a multi-stage life will be a great deal uh, more commonplace. And of course, from an organization's perspective, uh, it creates both opportunities and challenges. The challenges are that with a three-stage life, everyone's in lockstep. You know, everybody goes to education at the same time, uh, works at the same time, retires at the same time. But when people design multi-stage lives, and for example, we asked ask each of our 400 MBA students here to design their own life. You know, the really fascinating thing, Dave, is that every single one designed a different life. So that's also the end of lockstep. And that makes uh, really thinking about the, the policies in organizations and, and leadership development, for example, you have to think about that in a completely different way. Yeah, it's it's exciting and it's also really complex. It's much different than we've all the world we've all grown up with. And um, I was looking through your your work and I noticed that in your research you created three different profiles of people. And I was wondering if you could tell us a little more about that because I think that'll that'll help yeah. frame some of the, uh -huh. the different ways we're starting to look at this. Yes. Well, when we were writing the book, um, we wondered how could we bring this story, uh, this incredible narrative of fundamental change in longevity, how could you really bring that to life? And so we used a literary device where we, we, we sort of created three personas. So Jack is, in a sense, a traditional persona. I mean, he, he was born in the 40s, in the 1940s. He's had a pre pretty traditional life. He's retired at 65 years old. He passed away at 75, between 75 and 80. And that actually worked pretty well, those three stages. Jimmy is currently, is our second persona, and he's currently 40 years old. And he sort of probably started life thinking, started his career thinking it was going to be like Jack, you know, let me work until I'm 60 and then I'll retire and get onto the golf course. But of course, already Jimmy's life is extending. So already he's thinking, you know, I don't have the savings to do that. But also, do I really want to do that? We know that when people retire, unless they 
really jump into some some work of, of, of some type or another, they very quickly experience cognitive decline. And then we have uh, Jane, who's our 20-year-old, really understanding, and we notice this with quite a lot of 20-year-olds, that actually their life is going to elongate. So they're already thinking much more about what we would call intangible assets. You know, how am I going to really keep my productivity going right through, through my life? How am I going to keep my vitality? And I think most importantly, when... Uh, life goes from three stages to multi-stages, you have a lot more transitions. And you have those transitions where, where, where they're not in lockstep with your, with your peer group. So you have to do them on your own, and that means you have to be good at transforming yourself. And so we think that's the sort of third area of intangible assets. Oh, indeed, and I'm I'm absolutely the Jimmy in our in the model, and I I'm guessing <laughs> most of our audience probably is too. And uh, yeah. my my thinking has certainly changed on my career since when I started to today. Like you said, I I I'm not even sure I'd want to stop working at 65. Certainly, the nature of work would yeah. change, and 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 I hear that from a lot of people now that um that 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 difference is really striking. And 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 one other thing I noticed you've pointed out is that there's a disconnection now between our our chronological age and the stage of life we're in. And I was wondering if you could yes. say more about that. Yes, well, well, thank you for mentioning that, Dave, because I think that's one of the most sort of interesting insights, really, about what happens when everyone lives to 100. Right now, if you think about Jack's life, three stages, you didn't really need, if you knew Jack's age, you could tell what stage he was at, you know, so you could say Jack's 21, uh, Jack's 18, well, he's going to be a student. Uh, Jack's 64, well, he's going to be retired. Um, Jack's uh, 45, well, he's going to be working. But you see, when everybody invents their own lives, creates their own multi-stage life, then, then what that means is that they have to themselves uh, decide what to do, and they have to do it, you know, really on their own and that means they've got to be a great deal more thoughtful about it and of course we also see new stages emerging so uh, let me give you an example of that the the one that many of your listeners will be interested in and I know that many of their clients will be interested in is this idea of portfolio living where you have more than one job and you try and balance it but it's not just that we also expect an increasing rise in independent producers. So at one stage in your life, you know, you work for yourself or with a few people using all this amazing technology that we have access to. But we also think that people are going to have exploration stages. You know, why is it only that only 18-year-olds are having gap years? Why aren't we having, why aren't you as a 45-year-old having a gap year? Or why aren't I as a 61? So what that means is that as people take different stages at different times, then it becomes what I would call age agnostic, you know. So you could be 60 and you're back in education. You could be 40 and you're um, you're taking you're taking a gap year. Uh, you could be 23 and you've built a portfolio. And we think that as the age groups mix together doing the same activity, much of the stereotyping of age, which I think is really dreadful in many ways, I think a lot of that will be reduced and people will just see people for what they are, not immediately say, how old are you? Yeah. Oh, and so much of this 
is so exciting to me. <laughs> like I, I, I love what you've articulated and just thinking about a world and a workplace where that is true. And, and, and of course the reality is, and, and here in the States and, 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 in, and, and in Europe, I'm sure too, and in many parts of the world that we're still, like you said earlier, like a lot of our institutions and our organizations are still kind of thinking about things through this three-step model. And I'm, I'm wondering as yeah. what the implications here are for, uh, leaders, uh, those who are running companies, about how they think about the career paths of their employees? Yeah, well, I would say this, and, and I think actually there's very big implications for career paths, uh, uh, particularly you know for a leader in terms of their own career path, but also the career path of, of their employees. And here's some, some, some suggestions. W- one is, why is it we think that all of our uh, talented people join us when they're graduates. You know, wh- why don't we have uh, capacity to bring people in at any age, given that they might want to have done different things before then? That, that That's one idea. Second is, you know, why aren't we allowing people to take sabbaticals and, and saying, look, it's okay to take a year off to do pretty much what you want. Why can't we then bring them back in? Thirdly, why can't we be more flexible about working practices? You know, when I ask people, do you think that you could work from, you know, nine to five or eight to seven, whatever people's working hours are, do you want to do that for, to, until, you're, until you're 80 years old? I mean, most people say no. They don't mind periods of intense work, but they also want periods when there's more flexibility, when they're bringing up children, when they're going to learn a new skill, when they're looking after their, their older parents. And so I think we need a much more flexible approach to, to how work is done, given that many of us are going to be working into our late 70s, early 80s. You mentioned something there just a minute ago of some of the family transitions with, with parents and kids. And um, and it's making me think of something you, you said earlier about we're handling more transitions in our lives at different at different times for each one of us. And I've heard you say that the problem with transition is the people who know you best don't want you to change. Yeah, well, well tell yeah. us about that. Yeah, well we 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 as we realized that that tr- making a transition was going to be a really important stage in many people's lives. We looked much more deeply at the research on people in transitions and people who've had sex, uh, successful transitions. And there are really two aspects of what we call that an asset. We actually think that being able to make a transition is an intangible asset that people have to develop. And there's two things that they need to develop that asset. And and your audience will be very aware of this. One is they need to have self-knowledge. So they need to know the sort of person they are, the sort of person they want to be in terms of their possible selves. Uh, And they need to know, you know, what they're good at, what pleases them, what they're passionate about. But they also need diverse networks. And that's because if you have very homogenous networks where everybody around you is just like you, it's very difficult for you to change because obviously people want you to be the same as them. So they don't want you to change because if you change, then they have to change. And so, you know, if you've got diverse networks, then somewhere in this diverse network, there will be somebody who's a little bit like what you would like to become. I mean, I'm sure you've noticed that in your own life, Dave, and I'm sure your listeners have, where you know they, they meet somebody in, in an unexpected way, and there's an aspect of their lifestyle or character that they think, I, I would like to be like that. 
And I think that that diversity is really important. And it's not just about gender and it's not just about nationality. It's also about age. You know, I personally find it very exhilarating that I have friends who are in their 80s and I look at them and say, I would like to be like you when I'm 80. Mm. And I hope that when people look at me, they say, I'd like to be like you at 60. That's why, you know, when I'm teaching, I know lots of people don't like to say what their age is, but you noticed I said that to you right at the beginning. And and I do it when I teach. And basically what I'm saying to my class or executives is, this is what 60 is like. And they go, way, that's not bad. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> I could awesome. do that. And, and it's a very, you know, it, it, it's a very engaging thing. So I think building diverse networks, particularly with different age groups, is just a wonderful thing to do. And I know for my own personal life, I, I see that as a very important aspect. I suspect that a lot of us don't think as intentionally about that as we probably should. And one of the implications, of course, of living to 100 is that you're sustaining relationships for a lot longer, potentially, throughout a lifetime than many of us have in prior generations. And, uh, and, and I'm wondering, are there things that you've seen of the people you've studied and worked with, Linda, that have helped them to make that shift to getting out of just their our, our more traditional thinking of like just our peers and the people around us and our careers and to yeah. move more broadly? Well, I think you're absolutely right, really, that you need intentionality. I think all of us are most comfortable um, mixing with people who are just like us, you know, same gender, same age, same uh, education level. So if you don't want to do that, you have to intentionally not do that. So you have to intentionally decide to go to places where you're likely to meet people who are different from you, or you have to intentionally say, as I do, I want to, you know, I have part of my, as my friendship network, some people who, who are over 80, and I intentionally keep in touch with those people and, you know, have, have supper with them and talk to them and so on. So I think you're right, it is intentionality, because for most of us, the fallback position is, let's just hang out with people who are just like us. And I'm, I'm, I do that as much as anyone does, and I and, and it, it it actually is only when you do a proper network analysis and you say to yourself, "Who do I actually know?" that you realise how homogenous your networks are. And the problem with that is they're not the networks that are going to help you change because they don't, you know, for example, finding a new job and you probably, you know, there's been very clear research on that. You don't find a new job through your friends. Why? Because your friends, you and your friends know what jobs are available. I mean, your friends don't know any more than you do. They're your friends. You actually mostly find a new job through a friend of a friend because their, their networks are wider than yours and they might uh, have, you know, they might know something that you don't. So, you know, if you want to learn more about the world, you have to build wider and more diverse networks. I, I couldn't help but notice how much um, the the term networks comes up in your work and how, how central that is to this. And you just mentioned something that I don't think we've talked about on the show before, a network analysis. Um, could you say something about that? And what would, for someone who yeah, sure. wants to look uh, at, at that, how, where's the starting point for them? Okay, well, so when we think about each one of us in terms of our capital, 
historically, we've always thought about intellectual capital. And, you know, I, I started as, I'm a psychologist, actually. So all, most of my early research and work was done looking at intellectual capital, how bright is somebody and so on. We then realized, hang on, it's more than that. And we added to that level of description, we added emotional capital, you know, which is, you know, how emotionally literate are you uh, and so on. But that's, when you think about it, is very much still suggests that most people's character and so on is contained within themselves, when actually most of us are embedded within social networks. And, and that's what we call social capital. And the more that researchers, particularly sociologists, have looked at social capital, the more they've realized how incredibly valuable it is. And so you're right, actually, in every single one of my intangible assets, and I have three, productivity, vitality, and transformation, each of those have a different aspect of social capital or networks. So productivity, for example, the sort of network you want to make you become more productive are networks of experts who've got the same expertise as you. You know, here's the thing about getting better at what you do. And so it's great to have those networks of people who have the same expertise because you can help each other and they can mentor you. Uh, the second one, it's just about vitality. We know that one of the ways that people keep vital is because they have close regenerative friendships. So, so how have you, you know, do people give themselves enough time to build those long, long friendships? And then thirdly, as I've mentioned earlier, with regard to, you know, your capacity to transform yourself, we know that diverse networks are really important. And each of those are aspects of networks and each of them are aspects of social capital. I noticed that one of the things that you mention um, in your work for leaders is uh, is two areas. One is building authenticity in yourself, and and I think that's a word that so, resonates a lot with uh, with many of us in leadership these days. Um, and then also how to learn about the world that you live in. And yeah, um, I'm wondering maybe on the the first one, uh, authenticity. Uh, that is that is the buzzword these days. What are you finding right now that is helpful for leaders, especially in a in a in a, in a multi stage life that that is helpful to build that authenticity? Yeah, well, the piece that is around leadership, I wrote in a book called The Key, which is my last book, and I wrote a whole chapter on what. And the key was about how how can corporations make a difference in the world? And I wrote a piece about what does that mean for leaders? And, and it was very much based on some work that I'd done with the World Economic Forum, where there'd been a, a council on the future of leadership, you know, with all sorts of interesting people as a member of that council. In fact, I can send you a link to that oh, for, your, be great. for your readers. Thank you. Yeah. But... But what we found is that, that the leaders go through what I would call an inner journey and an outer journey. And the inner journey is about understanding themselves and the outer journey is about understanding their world. And they actually need to do both of those things. So the inner journey is about the journey to authenticity, which is to say, you know, who am I? What do I believe in? How can I be sure that, that my actions and values are similar? And that's very important for leaders because when you don't trust a leader, it's partly because you see, you believe they're hypocritical. You believe that there's a gap between what what they espouse and what they actually do. And then in terms of the outer journey, it's really about understanding the sort of system that people live in, you know, the, the, the realization that their actions 
have implications, but not always the implications that they that they imagine. And also understanding about the world in terms of the major trends that are shaping the world. But but the but the inner part is really about your relationship with yourself. And you know yourself that leaders who are trustworthy are trustworthy because the gap between what they say and what they do is isn't isn't a huge gap. I mean, all of us. None of us say exactly, do exactly what we say. That would be impossible. But, but nevertheless, if one can keep it to a to, to, to a size that others still say, yeah, you know, in general, you do what you say. I, I can trust you, because in this day and age where trust in leaders is low, being a trustworthy leader is very, very crucial. Oh, indeed, and uh, I just love the way you articulated. Uh, thinking about it, not only from our, ourselves, but learning from the world around us. And um, and one of the realities, of course, for all of us is that we are now getting information, learning, resources from so many different places. As you mentioned, as yeah. you build your network, it comes from so many different places. I'm just curious, Linda, for you, um, you're, you're a top thinker in, your, in, in the field and you've done such amazing work. Um, how do you integrate it? Like when you, when you, thinking about just things you read and, and, and getting articles from people and, and books you decide to... Is, do you have a system for that? Or is there a way that you find that you're able to integrate that as far as just your own personal learning system? Yeah, it was interesting. The, fin- the Financial Times did a piece a couple of months ago. In fact, I think it's on my website where they, they asked a number of writers, of which I was one, how do you how do you how do you sort of synthesize and write? And, and interesting enough, although they asked different types of writers, you know, I'm obviously a writer in business, but one of them was a crime writer. We all said exactly the same thing, which is that we have periods of assimilation and we have periods where we actually write. So I, when I'm... So, so for example, I finished. You know, I wrote the book Hundred Year Life, and that, and I wrote that finished about a year ago. It came out in Ju- in June, but of course, books are finished. You know, way before they're actually published. And and during that period of time, I have in my mind the question: What happens when everybody lives to a hundred? And so, everything I look at, everything I see, I look at it in that vein. You know, I'm constantly looking. You know, I I read a lot. I Twitter. I um. I, I read The Economist, I read The Financial Times, I read The Wall Street Journal, I need, read The New York Times. And, and every time I meet somebody or think of it, I ask myself, what is this person saying about what happens when everyone lives to 100? So my, my process of assimilation tends to be around a question. Now, I'm actually just moving out of that. And I'm, the question I'm beginning to ask myself is, is there much that we can learn from the creative industries? I'm passionate about opera. And I'm, in fact, I've just been to an opera this today. Um, you know, is there a way that we can learn more? And, and I will now start a very broad research. And it'll take me about a year. And I, and I read a lot. I mean, when I, well, I just, I'm sitting here in my office and I've just glanced around and <laughs> my whole office is full of books, most of which I haven't read yet. I can relate to that. <laughs> it's fabulous. I, I love that. I love that thought of just thinking around things around a question or a project, and then uh, and I do the same thing of looking through the lens of that question, and then being able to see new things that you wouldn't have otherwise seen. That's fabulous. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, leaders are always growing, of course. What's one thing, even more so now, in a, in, a, in a longer life that we're all living, what's one thing, Linda, you hold to be true today that you did not recognize or maybe believe five years ago? 
Oh, well, that would be about, about, about democracy, but we probably, I don't know if we'll want to get into that. I mean, I've been, <laughs> I've been very shocked, actually, and it happened in the UK, um, about how it's okay now to tell lies to, to, to people. And I think that's been quite shocking. We've, as you know, had a, a vote to leave uh, the European Union, the Indeed. Brexit. And most many people, you know, but it was half and half really voted for and against. And and politicians really lied about that. Uh, and they were leaders and they lied. And poof, I, I, I've, I've been really shocked at that, actually. Uh, in fact, Mark Thompson uh, has written a marvelous book. He's the, he's the guy that runs the, the New York Times these days. He was at the BBC. About that, I'm sort of confused about that, really. And I think that the, the, the age of the expert is gone. And of course, I'm an expert, so I feel very sad about that. But I think it's okay to say, say stuff that's not true. And that's, I, I think that leaders have just got to tell the truth. I think it's absolutely crucial. And, and it's, uh, it, it pains me to see particularly political leaders just, just telling, telling lies and, and being believed for that. And experts, some of whom are telling the truth, are disbelieved. So I think this question of truth and what is truth will become a very, very important issue for leaders going forward. Well, thank you for saying that. Uh, you, you, you've probably noticed we have an interesting uh, presidential election going yeah. on here in the states as well. Yeah. And I didn't, uh, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't presume to say anything about that. I could only talk, <laughs> but I, it, it has been noticed. Yeah, I bet, I bet. <laughs> on this side of the pond, we didn't and, notice it yet. So oh, how funny! It's yeah, pe- people are really listening, and and I, and I think it these sorts of debates just really start to define what leadership is and whether people trust leaders. And of course, once people lose trust of leaders, it it's, it's a terrible thing. I mean, you get chaos. And of course, that's a terrible, terrible thing. I think holding on to truth is, is very important for leaders. I, I have the same concerns you do for that exact same reason is, uh, and you, you see this and I, I, you know, several years ago when Steve Jobs passed away, there was a lot of commentary around leadership circles of like, oh, you know, Steve Jobs did this and this and this. And as a result, that's a that's always what all good leaders should do. And there are some fabulous things that Steve Jobs did. And there's also some things he did that weren't so great. And, yeah. and we see some yeah. of that in our our political dialogue in, in both of our countries right now. And, and my fear is yeah. the same as yours is sometimes you see people getting traction around a particular way of being. And my concern yeah. also is the same that that we start to teach our society that that's what it, that's what good leadership yeah. is, and that's um, what ex- what's acceptable. Yeah, yeah, and and, yeah. and I think you and I are both on a journey to uh, to to say, hey, you know, yeah. <laughs> there may be some things we can. There's some things we can learn from everyone, of course, but uh, but good leadership is is about truth. So uh, I'm I'm yeah. I'm so glad yeah. you brought that up. Speaking of things we should leave people with, I would love to leave folks with some of the resources on your website and of course the mm-hmm. book um, yeah. that'd be helpful is, is thinking about the hundred year life. Could you tell us more about what's available on the website and particularly the assessment? Yeah, sure. Well, well actually when we wrote the book, we, we took as, almost as, enough as much effort to build the website as we did to write the book. So um, if you'd, if you'd like to go to www.100yearlife.com, uh, you'll find uh, a lot of resources. So, um, you can, there's interviews with people. We've interviewed experts about different aspects of the 100-year life. We've talked to people who are, who are living these long, happy lives. And most importantly, we have put a diagnostic on there that you can do for free. Uh, and that helps you to work out whether you're building, maintaining, or depleting your intangible and tangible assets. 
And up to now, 10,000 people have filled that in. So we'd love more of you to fill it in. Please do. And it's the sort of thing you probably would love to do with your clients as well. Fabulous. Linda, I'm so uh, I'm so thankful for you having spent part of your one of your life stages of putting together this research and writing this well, book. And it's it's one of those things that I think it's not news to most of us that we're living longer. And yet, m- for most organizations and people, we haven't really spent time thinking about this very intentionally. Yeah. Yet. And so I'm, I'm really yeah. glad that you're getting us thinking intentionally about this. So thank you so much for that. Thank you so much. Nice to speak with you, Dave. Linda Gratton is the author with Andrew Scott of the new book, The 100-Year Life, Living and Working in an Age of Longevity. Thanks, Linda. Thank you, Dave. Linda, thank you again for your time. Also, a big thanks to Luke for helping me out with the introduction. And I hope that you found this conversation helpful. All of our resources that we mentioned in this uh, chat are going to be available in the weekly leadership guide. That comes every Wednesday, and it'll be in your inbox. And in addition to the show notes each week, you'll also get access to my handpicked resources for leadership development between the shows, books, videos, articles, other things that I found online that I think will be really helpful to you in continuing to frame your perspective around leadership. Uh, When you join that, you'll also get access to my reader's guide that lists the 10 leadership books that will help you to get better results from others. And you can access all of that at coachingforleaders.com dot com slash subscribe. And you may remember in the introduction today, I mentioned that Linda Gratton is on the Thinkers 50 list. It's a very, probably the most prestigious list for management thinkers on earth. And we've had a number of other guests on the show who are also on that list. So the related episodes today are other folks. If you found this conversation helpful, I think you'll find the thinking that uh, some of these folks are doing is really amazing on, uh, on how they're helping us to frame our management and our leadership. Uh, Back on episode 84, Daniel Pink was on talking about uh, his most recent book, To Sell is Human. On episode 196, Marshall Goldsmith, also featured on the list, uh, was talking about his book, Triggers, also the author of one of my favorite books on leadership, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. It's on my top 10 leads for readers, top 10 reads for leaders. (laughs) Hopefully I said that right. On episode 236, Sidney Finkelstein was on talking about how super bosses master the flow of talent, a recent book about bosses in in industries and how they're in some cases influencing entire industries, which is uh, just a really, really cool perspective and some of the research that he's found on that is just really amazing. On episode 238, How to Be a Nonconformist with Adam Grant, also on the Thinkers 50 list. And then finally, John Cotter was on the show this past summer, episode 249, talking about the distinctions between leadership and management and how to be successful with both. He also talked about his most recent books. So check out those. Uh, Those will all be in the weekly leadership guide, of course. And the way to access the past episodes, coachingforleaders.com slash the episode number is the best way to reach that. Now, if you happen to be in South Florida or Southern California, listen up. I am in the process of planning uh, tentatively a couple of listener meetups in the next few months. And I am seeking your help if you're in one of those two areas. Uh, We did a meetup this past summer in Chicago, and it worked out great. Uh, But one of our Uh, One of the attendees uh, suggested that it'd be fun uh, for future meetups rather than trying to 
do the logistics of going to a restaurant and RSVPs and all those things that you have to do, that it might be fun to see if some folks who are in local areas had access to either an office facility or co-working space and be willing to host a meetup. And so I'm curious if you are in the Fort Lauderdale area in Florida, I'm going to be out there the week of November 21st for a few days. And I'm thinking about doing a meetup, maybe that Monday or Tuesday, that is the as Thanksgiving week here in the States. If you happen to be in the Fort Lauderdale, Florida area and have access to a facility we could uh, utilize for a couple hours for uh, maybe a couple of dozen people to get together to do a meetup in the community. Let me know if you'd be up for uh, donating uh, a space for a few hours. You can reach me at coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. And also planning to do a meetup here in Orange County, California, sometime during the month of December. I've actually never done a meetup here in my home uh, home county. So uh, if you're in the Orange County, California area, and we're not already connected, uh, I'd love to hear from you if you uh, think that might be a possibility during the month of December 2016. And then finally, uh, planning a meetup tentatively later in the week on the week of January 9th, 2017 down in San Diego. We have uh, one of our mastermind members is going to be out here and trying to gonna k- connect up with her, but we thought it'd be fun to do a meetup as well. So uh, again, those dates, uh, week of February or week of uh, November 21st, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, December, uh, Orange County, California, and uh, later in the week, January 9th in San Diego, 2017. So if, if you're in that area and have access to a facility, would love to hear from you if you're up for possibly donating for a couple of hours. So uh, we could uh, get a community meetup together. And uh, of course, we'd love to have you involved as well. Coachingforleaders.com slash feedback is the way to get in touch with me. And thanks in advance if uh, if you are able to help or, uh, or know someone who might be able to. We so appreciate it. And on next episode, Ron Wallace is here. He's the former president of UPS International, and he's on the show to discuss the leadership lessons he learned from his days as a UPS driver and all the way up to leading a massively successful Fortune 500 company. And uh, so join us for that conversation. I think you'll find it really interesting. And thank you also this week to EA Zambrano and Interview Valet CF, both here in the States, for the kind reviews that you left on iTunes. Thank you to you both. I so appreciate it. If you've been listening to the show for a bit and uh, feel like you can leave a rating or review on iTunes or one of the other services, uh, just visit coachingforleaders.com slash iTunes. That's the best way to do that. Have a fabulous week, and I look forward to speaking with you again next Monday. Take care.